that death, burial, and resurrection, and even your baptism, you need to understand what it's symbolizing when, when you go through it in order for it to have any meaning. I think the real key is that we properly teach people and then they decide. Right. But it's one thing to teach what baptism symbolizes, and it's a physical act, and by faith you obey it, and another thing to teach that uh, you believe, you repent, you've confessed, you understand what it symbolizes, and you were baptized, but you're lost. Why? Because in, in your system, you, had, you were taught error about the Holy Spirit and taught that it regenerated your mind right before baptism, therefore your baptism is invalid. And that's, for example, what we've said to the, to the Baptist. The guy believes, he repents, he confesses, he's been baptized, he understands it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He will not receive you into his fellowship unless you've been immersed in, in, in that, with that same understanding and all. And yet we go to a mechanical, what we believe is misunderstanding, and nullify the salvation of a man that by all evidence of his life obviously loves the Lord and is repentant of his sins and is trusting in Jesus for his salvation. In my background, and I'm sure it's most of the people here, um, someone can be very, could have been very, very sincere, or can be today, and and sincerely loves the Lord and trying to do what's right, but he can uh, be wrong on the instrumental music or wrong with uh, any number of little things, and there's no chance for that person. That you know, there's no way for them to be saved. Uh, they worship. And that, I like your example of, it's, it's like we've got ourselves as being more merciful than God. If someone commits a crime, and we might say he deserves to be punished, but to pull him out every day and burn him a little bit, we would think, well, now that's not very, you know, that's not being very humane to pull a person out and burn them for a while each day, maybe on their arm or their leg or something. But yet we take this sincere person and, and we say that God's going to roast them in hell forever just because they were wrong on, on a couple of points. And, and even, it doesn't matter how sincere they are. Yeah. That just doesn't sound like Well, even in our own law system, which by the way is based on the Bible and the law of Moses, uh, when a life is taken, what do we do before we try that person? We, deter we determine... Uh, how much intent of heart was there. And so if you took a life, but yet you didn't take it out of hatred and want to murder that person, then it's not first-degree murder. And we have different degrees there, and it's only when it's uh, nailed down that you intended, you hated that person, intended to take their life, does it become first-degree murder. Well, remember the law of Moses? If you killed somebody, didn't intend to kill them, you had one of the cities of refuge to flee to. It had to be established that you actually laid in wait for that person and, and that you hated them and you wanted to kill their life, only then was you counted a murderer. And there was the understanding that there would be times that lives would be taken without the hatred uh, in the heart. Uh, that's a very, uh, I'll tell you what, let's read this and conclude this part of the study because uh, maybe a part that is uh, still in your mind somewhat, it was in mine and, and all this, is this person who hasn't been immersed who believes in Jesus and is repentant and has his trust there, but it's because he's ignorant. Uh, he's been mistaught from his background concerning baptism, and so he's been sprinkled or something. Well, first of all, let me ask you this. Uh, before the Restoration Movement and before the Baptist, how many people of professing Christians would you have found that were immersed? 
Uh, they were all Church of England that broke off from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, uh, the Catholic Church had initiated uh, sprinkling as a substitute in 1311, and there was no immersion going on. That's why the Baptists were called Baptists in disdain because they were going back and studying and say, "Hey, this is immersion, you know, and you, and you should be immersed." And they were they were causing people. So you had several hundreds of years where really you, you could not find a group anywhere in the world that was immersing. And by the way, uh, if between the second century, between the second century and the 19th century, where is there a body of people that calls themselves the Church of Christ, does not have a piano, and demands that you have this precise understanding of immersion at that time? Where does that body exist? It doesn't. Did Alexander Campbell understand it in 1800? He didn't. Thomas Campbell was 48 before he was immersed. Right. 48. And uh, and by the way, it was a Baptist preacher that baptized uh, Alexander Campbell, and he never was rebaptized. Uh, so I'm saying there, if if salvation is not by grace through faith, you know, it's uh, and we can see the wisdom of God. Uh, because of our own frailty and our own biases and ignorances and things of this nature. Let's look at this passage and we'll conclude for this uh, morning. Turn over here to Numbers because the principle involved, uh, I think, is uh, Numbers 15 and verse uh, 22. Now notice the mercy, and this is the law of Moses now. Uh, we don't think of it as the code that emphasizes mercy. Beginning with verse 22. If you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to do, through, you do through him from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come. If this is done unintentionally, without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, along with its prescribed grain offering and drink offering and a male goat and sin offering. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community, and they will be forgiven, for it was not intentional. And they have brought to the Lord for their wrong an offering made by fire and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the aliens living among them will be forgiven because the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. But if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a year old female goat and sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. And when atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. One and the same law applies. All right, now look at verse 30. This is where we've been dealing on the difference. If, but anyone who sins defiantly whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off and his guilt remains. There is a difference between the person who understands a command of the Lord and says, I'm not going to do it, and somebody who is ignorant of some particular point at this time in his life. And by the way, in the whole first ten chapters of Leviticus deals with that concept. And it says when they become aware of it, well, then they offer the sacrifice. But from the Christian standpoint, what is the sacrifice? Jesus. Jesus. And so you're justified by grace through faith in him. His sacrifice will take care of our ignorances. And it is 
willful sin that we were that we refuse to repent of that breaks us from the grace of God. Remember the Hebrew writer, if you continue to willfully sin, there remains no more sacrifice for your sin. So as long as is when a person is in willful sin and he continues in it and doesn't repent, that's when he discredits himself from the sacrifice of Christ. Any other comment? Say, the scripture you just read from Numbers uh -huh. is is very important, I think, to the church because a lot of times we tend to we tend to overlook sins that, that we know people are committing. We we tend, okay. to, we tend to be uh, afraid to confront the people, and and here he puts he puts it right down. He says, now if this is an unintentional sin, if the whole community is unaware of that you're uh -huh. that you're committing, then then that's okay. But but if it's the person that's committing it, they've got to they've uh -huh. got to take care of it. But we are a community, and if I'm aware of Mark Moore doing something, then I have a responsibility. And the New Testament points that out. Uh -huh. What we often do, uh, what's your first name again? Nick. Nick. What we often do, Nick, is that on the one hand, we look over here at this person who doesn't agree with us on the piano. And, and no matter how sincere he is or how much faith he has or anything like that, and, and we know that if he's wrong on that, it's due to ignorance. I mean, after all, if he believed that it shouldn't be there, he'd get it out of there. I mean, he's, he's obviously repented and everything like it. So he's doing that because of ignorance from our standpoint, and so... We condemn him unmercifully, no chance. But then we come over here to a brother who agrees with us on these few physical acts, who may be willfully doing things wrong morally, whether it's mistreating his wife, being dishonest on the job or whatever, and we don't want to get involved or, or deal with that situation. In other words, we create a situation where if somebody is down the line with us on these few physical points, they're in fellowship, and we will overlook a whole lot of other things. On the other hand, we'll condemn a very good person just because that doesn't agree with us in some of these points, uh, but but because that they're not right, even though we acknowledge it maybe it's due to ignorance on that point, or at least a different understanding. Or or heaven forbid we might be wrong. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> don't, don't say that. Surely, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, right. Uh, the uh, the obvious thing is that we are we're always learning where would we be without the grace of God I can remember as a legalistic Church of Christ preacher which is the way I started out and the things that I preached then and I can remember when the Alvo at my age would remember this when the church had the division over the orphan homes and the herald of truth well I had just uh, I'm not I'm a relatively new convert I been through the service, Barbara and I got married, I come back, to, I made the decision to preach, and I come back to David Lipscomb College uh, in, the, in the 60s and to, to finish up and ma major in Bible. And so while I'm there, this big argument's going on in the church about whether you can support the Herald of Truth and whether about orphan homes, I don't even know what they're talking about. You see, I made the decision to believe, preach because of my belief in Jesus and wanting to evangelize and all, and I'm all caught up in this. But the thing that was interesting is being approached from a heaven-hell standpoint. And the group where Barbara and I was, the church where we was going to worship, it was on Franklin Road in Nashville, they had taken the stand against these things. They were teaching it was sinful, and there was pressure being put on, and the other brethren were called the unfaithful and the liberal, and it never going to lose their soul. 
you know, if they continued in that type of thing. So we felt all this pressure to get this thing studied out because we thought, hey, if you're wrong about this, heaven and hell hangs on the balance. And I can remember in those early years, every time I studied anything, whether it's the woman wearing a covering or the things about the Masonic Lodge or whether a Christian can go to the military or not, it was always studied in an atmosphere of heaven and heaven, heaven and hell hanging in the balance. I really believe that we created a very uncomfortable situation. I think we run off good people. And if people can know you come in as a babe in Christ, you are imperfect, God loves you, and you've got all your life to grow and mature, and God is not some mean person ready to zap you because you're going through some problems in your life or you don't understand something. The good news is that salvation is in Christ. Just keep your faith in Him and keep growing and, and maturing. And He knows your heart. He knows your heart. And good people get caught up in problems and things that we've worked with over the years with alcoholics that would keep slipping and come back and slipping and come back. Well, they became addicted to that stuff before they became a Christian. And their body was now addicted and they'll fight it the rest of their life. And we sometimes have no patience, no love, no understanding uh, with people that are in that situation. Or the guy that smokes, throw it down just like that. And we, we, we find it hard to understand how that, uh, you know, his body became addicted to that before he became a Christian. And, it, uh, and we leave, leave him with the impression sometimes, man, get rid of it now, go to hell. But, uh, you know, that, and that's not it. Uh, there, there is room to mature and grow and, and, and have our frailties as we develop along the way. And that's the good news. It's in Christ. Anything else before we... Okay. Necessitated, necessitated by the fact that we all have sin, Jew, Gentile, even the very best of us, and we put a just God in the position where he really has no choice but to condemn us. And so in the wisdom of God, God makes the decision to come himself to earth, to clothe himself in human flesh, to perfectly keep his own law, 
even demonstration of the fact that he could be kept. We, we get a look at what a life looks like when he walks in full compliance with the law. And then when he was executed, God allowed it to happen and then used their evil act to present a sacrifice of himself for all mankind. And so he demonstrated his love, his, his wrath against sin, and then an atoning sacrifice that makes it possible for us to stand because of our trust in him. And we noted that Paul not only makes it clear our need for Jesus and that sacrifice, but he seems, at least in my judgment, to go overboard to make it clear that this salvation is by grace through faith. Uh, not grace through faith plus rule-keeping, but grace through faith in that sacrifice. And he puts us in a situation where he says that we have no room for boasting. To back up his point, he goes back to Abraham. And he points out that righteousness was imputed to Abraham based on his belief in God before he ever did one physical act of obedience. And then he pointed out that the physical acts of obedience and the example he chose was circumcision, the sign of the covenant, which a Jew had to do to be in fellowship with one another and with God. And yet he nails down the fact that he was really counted righteous by God before the physical act and that the physical act was a sign or a seal of the faith that he had in his heart. And we noted that when we look at salvation in the Bible, the reason that sometimes we have apparent contradictions is because the scriptures look at man's salvation in two different ways. Sometimes it looks at man as God looks at his heart, and sometimes it, it looks at man from the standpoint of man looking at one another. And we noted that from God's standpoint, he looks into our heart, but you and I cannot see into a human heart. We only see what a person does or his action. So from our standpoint, the confession with the mouth allows us to know that a person believes in Jesus and we would not know it without that. And when we see him embrace the Lord's command and in faith be baptized, understanding that, that he is depicting the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that he's picturing his own death and burial and resurrection to walk in newness of life, when we see that, we know that this person has embraced the sacrifice of Christ. He has identified with his death. He's going to experience the new resurrection with him. And he literally wants his sins by faith to be washed away. And so we look at the act and we can say, yes, that person has faith enough to be counted a child of God. Faith is a, is a nebulous type thing in the sense that it's beheld in all different kinds of degree. And from our standpoint, if there was not some physical action there, I don't know that you could ever know or even feel comfortable on your own that your faith was sufficient uh, at any given point in time because your faith is always growing. And you would always say, is my faith sufficient? And God gives us a beginning point to express our faith. And even as our faith grows through the years, we can always look back and say that, well, I know I was born again. My faith was sufficient to do what God asked me to do uh, to express uh, my new birth. And so the Bible looks at it one time from man looking at his fellow man 
and identifying with the physical action. Another time it, it looks at it strictly from God's standpoint and God looking at the human heart, but Paul makes that very important for us to understand because he doesn't want any man to have any action on his part that he can boast or brag about. And so salvation is purely by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Christ. Now, the next question that comes to mind, in fact, this is a problem that we are debating uh, among the various churches of Christ right now in the, in the examination of this, uh, this argument over grace and the point of time of salvation and some of the other things that are happening now. What troubles a lot of individuals that, uh, and I know that I wrestled with this as I studied the subject, um, you probably have too. And I know there are individuals that, that would hear what I said this morning and hear what I've just said and would think, man, he's really gone off on the deep end. Is this really uh, somebody with the same background that, that we've got? And here's the problem. Are we opening up the gates for sin? In other words, the, the attitude is that uh, if you're saved by grace through faith, uh, then, and people don't realize that you've got to work to be saved, that you've got to give and you've got to do and you've got to do these things to be saved and you've got to come to church, that people will just quit coming to church. And we'll get into the sinning business in a big way and people just simply will not be as concerned. Or when we uh, get into discussions with our religious neighbors, and we've been concerned about unity and, and trying to get people to go back to the Bible and be just Christians and not some particular brand of Christian. And, and we've pointed out that we can only be one if we limit ourselves to the authority of the Bible. And so we say to ourselves, if, if this is a case of a man's salvation, then what does it really matter? Uh, are we going to be able to persuade anybody to give up denominational creeds and all and, and just embrace the New Testament uh, if he thinks he's saved in that situation? And so I think that attitude, that feeling is one that makes it very difficult for some to embrace what we've looked at here. But what I'd like to suggest to you is that if we'll just stick with Paul, he'll deal with this. And in the final analysis, I believe what we see is that a proper understanding of grace does not negate laws, it does not negate rules, it does not negate trying to do things in a right way, it does not negate living a godly life. A proper understanding of grace can become a motivating factor that will get more out of an individual than legalistic law-keeping, thinking you're saved in the laws, ever could. In fact, Paul himself, if you like to, before we look at what Paul says here, uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15.10 and examine the statement about himself, uh, one that Paul makes concerning his own actions, his own works, and the motivation for it. Verse 9, I am the least of all the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the <laughs> grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. Paul said it was the grace of God with me. I worked harder than all of them. 
What he's saying there is this understanding of God's unmerited favor, favor from God that I did not merit, that, that God by, could give me salvation as a free gift, that God could forgive all of my sins, that I'm so overwhelmed by the goodness and the mercy and the love of God that I have been motivated to outwork every one of the other apostles. So the motivating force in Paul's life is grace. And I would suggest to you that even among those who still cling uh, to a legalistic understanding of salvation, that in the final analysis, even among them, the ones that go into the mission work, the ones that dig down in their pocket and give, the ones that actually strive to live a godly life, their real motivation is grace. If you want to see a legalist and the motivation that stands behind it, uh, look at the individual that comes on Sunday morning and you never see him any other time because he has to partake of the Lord's Supper in his mind. He may not do anything, may not give, but he has to partake of the Lord's Supper, and that's fixed in his mind. That's one of those must. Uh, these people sometimes will even ask, do I have to go to church Sunday night? Have you ever been asked that? Or anybody, do I have to come on Wednesday? A person who understands grace doesn't even ask questions like that. How would you want somebody, how would you feel if somebody was going to recognize you in some way or do something for you, and they come to you and say, uh, do I have to do this? Uh, Mark, do I really have to do this for you? Well, Mark would probably say, keep it. I don't want it. How would you like to be married to an individual who did everything for you out of a sense of duty? And, and just a legalistic, well, I'm your wife and that's my duty. Or I'm the husband and that's my duty. Uh, wouldn't be much of a relationship, would it? The, the relationships that are good and work, work because people respond out of love. And, and we make our real sacrifices in life because of love. And Paul says that his motivating force is the grace of God. And what we're going to see now in the 5th and 6th chapter is that Paul anticipates this question, this problem that we just talked about. Paul anticipates that there are going to be those that say, well, if, uh, if uh, my sin just magnifies the grace of God, then why don't we just go out and, and really get into sin business? Big deal. You know, we all fall short. We're all sinners. He anticipates that, and he's going to answer it. But let's build up to it in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace into which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Notice now, because the Love of God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. <coughs> now the Holy Spirit isn't coming into your heart and in some mystical way causing you to love. That sure wouldn't be any glory to God if He has to cause you or make you to love Him in some way. Let's stick with Paul. You see that at just the right time, 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. The Holy Spirit has brought us this message of the goodness of God, the salvation that he offers. He's brought it about. And Paul says that when we learn that our God loved us so much, that even though we were in rebellion against him, even though we deserved to die, that he took our place, died in our stead, gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, the end result was that he motivated love in our hearts towards him. John said it this way in 1 John 4 and verse 19. We love God, anybody want to say the rest of it? Because he first loved us. Children grow to love their parents because the parents initiate the love process. I have a biological father that I don't love in the phileo sense of the word. I love in the agape sense that I, I want the best for him. I would like to see him repent. My biological father is a scoundrel. Uh, he was never a father to me. Uh, and I have no feelings for him. So he never initiated any love in me. I have no, I'm, I'm just feeling less in my response to him. My stepfather, when he died, I cried for a long period of time. He was my father. He was the one that cared for me and bought things for me and did and provided for the family. And he's, he was the one that treated me in such a way that, that people who didn't know us didn't realize that he wasn't my real father. Uh, my name, Cook, last name, is taken from my stepfather of my choice. And so that I have a biological father that conducted himself in such a way that there is no feeling. I love my mother. She was a true mother. I love my stepfather. But the love I have was engendered in my heart in the way they treated me and the things that they did on my behalf. In the same way, it is not you and I that initiate this love response between us and God. It's God that loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When you and I, what the gospel does is convey something that was always there, but nobody understood it. Uh, somebody reaches a point in their relationship with another that I never knew that you cared so much. I didn't realize that you loved me until such and such. Well, this is man's relationship with God. God's always loved man. But man did not realize how much God loved him until God died for him. And God left heaven. And God came to this earth. And God was born just like we are. And God grew up in human flesh. And he emptied himself of all that he had as God. Paul said that though he was equal with God, he counted not that equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and then became obedient even to the point of death. And so God demonstrates his love. John says we love because he loved us. 
Paul says it another way. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's been the Holy Spirit that's responsible for revealing all of this information all the way through. And our response then is we now love God. And so Paul is saying, and he's building up to where he deals with the problem that we introduced, that when you really understand grace, and you understand you're saved by grace through faith, you don't negate laws, you don't negate rules or regulations, you don't negate uh, a person living a righteous life or anything. A person that lives that way or conducts themselves that way just simply doesn't understand grace. A proper understanding of grace by one who has faith will motivate the kind of life that Paul talks about. Okay, now, come on over to the sixth chapter. As Paul specifically answers the question, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? We now know how much God loves us. Uh, that he's given us salvation as part of his un our unmerited favor, well, then let's just continue sinning that grace may increase. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may have a new life. If we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly be unified with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. Therefore, in light of what I just said, that's what therefore means. In light of what I've just said, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you obey its evil desires. Now, in the passage I just read, what was the word that was used most? Death. If you was reading this for the first time and you had not been taught that another word in there is really what Paul's talking about and it's the most important thing, the word that stands out is death, isn't it? Is Paul trying to prove to anybody here that they should be baptized, or is he assuming that they've already been baptized, and he is reminding them of all that was involved and all they should have understood when they obeyed that command? Is he trying to prove to them that they need it? Don't you know? In other words, I assume you know this. Here's the question you've asked. We may as well continue in sin and let grace abound. And Paul says, don't you know? Hey, I'm assuming that you guys know something that you're not acting like you know. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, buried with him into death, raised from the dead. We've died to sin. Paul is talking about this point in their life when they have repented. 
they've changed their mind and they've been sorry for their sins. And, and in Paul, in fact, Paul makes a statement in Acts 20, 21, I preach repentance towards God and then faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or like Peter said, repent and then be baptized. And so Paul takes them back to their death, to themselves, and he says, here's what you were typifying when you were baptized. You were going into the death of Christ, into the benefits of his death. You were picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You were also picturing your own death, burial, and resurrection. You arrived to walk in newness of life. He says, if you understand the meaning of this, then you know that you've died to sin. That you're wanting to separate yourself and now live to please God. And so Paul's argument is that anybody that thinks this way really doesn't understand what happened when he made the decision to be baptized. And so his emphasis there is on the fact that they have died and now they're alive together in Christ. In the same way, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God and then here's the last statement here. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you obey its evil desires. Now, is Paul teaching that as a result of this experience they've had with the grace of God that they're no longer going to sin? There, there's a difference between achieving perfection and operating in your mind, like Paul said in the seventh chapter, where you love God's law, you respect it, and you know it's right, and you're striving to follow it, therefore sin doesn't reign. What does reign mean? Rules. Dom right, rules you. Control. Dominates you. Um, in your life as a whole, David, guilty of adultery, had a man put to death. If you get to heaven, you're going to see David. Would a fair assessment of David's life be to refer to David as an adulterer or a murderer? Adultery was not an everyday part of David's life, was it? Murder was not an everyday part of his life. It wasn't something that reigned in a moment in time through passion and then through trying to cover it up, David sinned. David came to grips with himself. Now, if, if, if that was reigning in his life, he would have continued. But David came to grips with himself, and he repented, and we have a different fact. Remember in his prayer, he asked God to forgive him and said, Lord, if you'll forgive me, if you save me from blood guiltiness, I'll teach transgressors your ways. I'm going to spend the rest of my life uh, teaching others about how good you are in Psalms 51. So the end result of the great understanding of the grace of God is not that we achieve some moral perfection. Paul makes it very clear in the seventh chapter that we looked at this morning that we'll never achieve that. But we can achieve a situation where sin does not reign over us, it does not rule us, it does not control us, it's something we hate, it's something that we're always striving to flee from. And all of this and this attitude is because of our understanding of the grace of God. By the way, if this kind of attitude is brought about through the grace of God, do you really expect to find that kind of godliness in life on the part of those individuals who have not experienced or come in contact with the grace of God? I don't think so. I think sometimes we get the cart before the horse when we get out here on the world 
and we start telling them how terrible they are with abortion and all, all these various things, homosexuality, etc., and, and trying to argue with them from the standpoint of living in a certain way and denying themselves uh, certain uh, pleasures of the flesh or what they say are pleasurable in, the, in those various areas. When in reality, Paul said himself, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That what we need to be talking about, I believe, is, is the salvation that's in Christ, the evidence for his resurrection, the love of God, based on that, then call for a repentance and a change of life, and then a change of life after that. And this, this is really the, the method that Paul followed all the way through. Remember when he wrote to the Galatians in, in the 6th chapter, and he names off homosexuals and effeminate and adulterers, fornicators, etc., and he says, and thus were some of you, but now you've been washed and clean. Well, what changed them? Did Paul go to Corinth? And say, hey, you, you homosexuals, you adulterers, you fornicators, you effeminate, you're all wrong. And I'm telling you, you're wrong, and you're going to hell. Or did God, Paul say that he went in there, and he preached Christ Jesus, and his, crucified, his being crucified, and having been touched by the evidence for his resurrection and the love of God, he then brought about the repentance of those people. Well, that, that's the, the good news. That repentance brought about not by waving fire in somebody's face, uh, that, that can cause a lot of people to change who don't love anybody, including God. But true repentance is brought about by godly sorrow when an individual realizes that he's offended a God who loves him and simply then has a desire to turn and change and, and to change his life. Okay, Paul continues on. And what he's going to talk about through the remainder of the chapter is simply our response to the grace of God. Now what I'd like to do, one last thing for tonight, and we're going to skip a few chapters and go to the 12th, because all we're dealing with tonight is our response to the grace of God and pointing out that an understanding of salvation by grace through faith does not cause us to chuck aside any commands that God has given us. It doesn't cause us to want to go out and invent some, invent some new way to serve God in the church or anything of that nature. But a proper understanding of God's grace will cause us to want to do as right and as pleasing to God as we possibly can. Look at the 12th chapter and notice this word, therefore, again. Referring back. In light of what I've just said. In light of everything that I've been telling you about God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers... In view of God's mercy, notice again, as what we read about Paul's own motivation, which came from his understanding of grace, that when Paul wants these people to do something, he's not waving fire in their face, but he's reminding them of God's love. And then it's in view of this, in view of God's love, in view of God's mercy, and then he says of himself, as a result of the understanding of God's grace that I've outworked everybody else, and so Paul's method of motivation was grace. And the knowledge of the fact that God loved them and displayed his love for them. Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, and then what do we have throughout the chapter? Instructions on how to live your life. Now look at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Mourn with those that mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, be willing, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, etc. Did he leave anything out? God's mercies. I challenge anybody to find anything else that God uses. Paul used the, the wrath of God from Paul's standpoint was the natural justice of God. In other words, God is love, but he's also just. And so if you don't respond to the gospel and accept the sacrifice that's in Christ, you leave a loving God no choice to condemn you. He really doesn't want to condemn you. He doesn't want to destroy you. He doesn't want to separate from eternity. But you leave God no choice. That's the attitude, not God with a, with a big fireball up there that's, that's waiting to use that as a motivation to get you to do right. But God who looks on us with pity and love and mercy and says, you people are destroying yourself. You've put me in a predicament. I love you, but my justice is such that you have separated yourselves from me. I love you so much that I'll die for you. I'll bring about the one again. But if you don't respond to my mercy, you simply leave me no choice. What do you do if you've got one of your own children that's got a gun in his hand and he's going to shoot the others? And you've got a gun in your hand. Do you shoot your own child? Or has he put you in a position where you have no choice? When a policeman shoots a criminal, and, and the criminal is trying to kill someone, do we condemn the policeman, or do we say he's a hero? Well, I think at some time we condemn the policeman. I believe those of us, most of us, would say the man's a hero if he puts his own life on the line and shoots somebody that's trying to take the life of others. The picture of God in the Bible is not somebody who is up there vengeful, and waiting to roast us and burn us and, and wants us preaching sermons to motivate people to respond to his wrath and all. But it's a God that loves us, who's died for us, and wants us to repent, but lets us know that because of his justice, if we don't repent, he literally has no choice but to separate himself from us. And that's the God, I think, that we ought to present, and I think that's the God that Paul speaks of as the one that, through that grace, motivates us into a godly kind of life. Okay, your response. Well, I really don't. A lot of that, 
I don't really think there's anyone. I mean, what what need? What do you need to ask God for more? What more can He do? That's a good point. What more can God do? He, if He did any more, He would have to interfere with our free will. Isn't it? That uh, it's like again a loving parent who loves his children, and yet he's got one that has exercised his free choice to do wrong things. He pleads with the child, he reasons, he bails him out, he tries to help out the child, but he reaches, he reaches the point that there's nothing else he can do. If he, he tries to persuade the child to turn and do right, if the child doesn't, there's no more the parent can do. And, and the only way God could do more would be to not let us have free choice. Anybody else? What do you think, um, you know, when you talk about Jesus and he came to this world, he was God incarnate, incarnate and he lived the perfect life, um, sometimes it's kind of confusing to me because on the one hand we say that he was tempted in every way that, right. that we are, but then on the other hand, he, he did something that's not really humanly possible in, in terms of lived the whole life without committing a sin and so forth. So, you know, I mean, it's like he had an unfair advantage on the one hand because he's God incarnate, but then on the other hand, no. do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, uh, I differ there, Martin, since I don't believe he had a, I believe he was tempted in every way where I believe I differ with you is when you said that he did something that's not humanly possible and that's keep the law. If that's not humanly possible, then God has asked the impossible of us. And see, I think we have used that as like a cop-out against God. You give us this law, but really we can't keep it. Uh, we don't keep it because we sin. And, and we separate ourselves. So it's just like Adam and Eve. It wasn't God's fault. And Adam sinned, death passed unto all because all have sinned. Uh, Jesus could not be our sacrifice if he was not tempted in every way that we are tempted. If he was not, he could not be tempted unless it was possible for him to sin. So Christ had free will. Right, perfect free will. He, he could not be tempted. See now, as God, God's not in the flesh. But in the flesh... Jesus had the same temptations that, that you and I have. Uh, the flesh is part of the animal kingdom. It, it simply has its wants, its likes, its desires, but it, it's the mind that exercises control over that. And so uh, Paul says in Galatians 5, you cannot do the things you want. If you do everything you want, in fact, some people try it. But if you do everything you want in the final analysis, society would destroy itself in our, in our own greed and in our own selfishness. But Christ was tempted. Uh, the movie, which I didn't see, but uh, the statement, The Last Temptation of Christ, I differ with the movie, okay, uh, obviously. And, and the way they portrayed it and everything like that, it was almost maybe blasphemous. But I also believe that there was a valid point there. If Jesus was not tempted by the opposite sex in his years growing up, then he didn't face the same temptations I had to deal with. 
if uh, Jesus was not tempted when he come to the things of this life and to the prestige and things of that nature, that he didn't face the same temptations that I do. Remember the story when the devil took him out and tempted him? Well, how could it be a temptation except that he was, that he was appealing? That he was saying that, listen, you can rule over all of this. You can be the top man here. I can give it to you. If it had no appeal in the weakness of his flesh, and keep in mind he's emptied himself, and he is, I don't know that we, we fully appreciate how much he was emptied. Uh, he, he had to grow in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom. He had to study. And when he spoke of the judgment situation, uh, he made the statement uh, that I don't know the exact day, that only the Father does. So he didn't know everything. He, he had to be taught, and then he knew those things that the Holy Spirit was revealing to him after his baptism and the Holy Spirit came to him. But he was tempted in every way that we are. And I believe that all the temptations of life that we experience, he experienced, and I really believe we would appreciate him more if we realize that. And then remember when he goes to his death, he wasn't aching to get on that cross. He goes out there and he prays three times to God. And the Bible says that, that sweat is pouring from his body like blood. And then he petitions the Father and says, if it's possible to do it any other way, then do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so you, you see even there the agony and the temptation that was involved to escape the ordeal that he was going through on the cross. I really believe we would appreciate our God more if we fully understand the the temptations that, that he had to do, and it was the same as what you and I have. I've always had the understanding that uh, human beings can't live perfectly. Well, God's, uh, we, because of our nature, we don't. But I'm saying that if you cannot keep the law, then God required the impossible. And Jesus, if he had something going for him that we don't, then I don't know how that there is anything there to glory in. It's just like when I watch these guys that are seven foot tall and got hands twice the size of mine, they go up and dunk a basketball. You know, that doesn't prove anything to me because I feel if I was seven foot tall and had hands that big, I could do it too. You know, when I see a, a white guy like me, you know, a white guy like me with hands my size and arms my length and all go up and dunk that basketball, I'm impressed because I know how difficult it is. I've tried to do it and I can't do it. And so I'm impressed then. But I'm not impressed when uh, Abdul-Jabbar uh, dunks a basketball. And I'm not impressed when somebody 300 pounds on a football field runs over somebody that's 150 pounds. <laughs> you know, I'm impressed when a guy 150 pounds uh, does something. But... Uh, I'm saying that I don't, uh, to fully appreciate Jesus, I, I, I have to have him as one that was tempted in all ways like, like, like me. And he was born into a family situation, and I get a look at a law that uh, is perfectly kept by him. And I think that uh, my own sin is a result of my own choice. And, and that's why that we constantly grow and mature and develop. But I still believe that my sin is, is through my own choice and my own weakness. 
But has anyone else ever been able to live it perfectly? I mean, if it's a perfect, if it's a law we can live perfectly, then why is it necessary for Christ to die? Because nobody's ever done it and ever will. They, they just haven't. Uh, well, then that mutually ex excludes the fact that it can be. No, Jesus did it. Well, that was, but that was the point Mark made. Yeah. Jesus, but I'm Jesus, saying that, that, Jesus, uh, that Jesus did it. But if Jesus, Jesus was Jesus not... Jesus did it and showed that it could be done, but uh, we, we don't and can't. Uh, and the Bible teaches us that we can't. And that's why Christ had to die, was because we can't. Uh, if uh, God has expected... First of all, God is perfectly just. If God has put me in a situation where he expects something of me that I cannot do and then condemns me, that is not justice. Uh, that, in other words, uh, Paul accept, it says God expects of a man what he has and not what he has not. Uh, the poor widow gave a few mites and out gave all the, all the rest. Uh, the parable of the talents shows responsibility in keeping with your knowledge, etc. But uh, Jesus, to my mind, would not be the person who was tempted and always like I am and allow me to glory in his conquering over it if it was impossible for him to sin, but yet I had no choice but to sin. And, and so I believe even with his knowledge, uh, I believe until he was baptized, and the Holy Spirit came, I don't believe he had any information except what he was taught by Mary and Joseph and the teachers and his own study of the scriptures. Uh, and then at that point, God gave him information through the Holy Spirit, just like uh, the apostles uh, he was to convey to them. But he had to study and learn, I believe, just like, just like we do. And I, and I think he had to invest the, the time in doing that. But I really don't... Uh, uh, I don't see what was accomplished if he could not sin, that he, that he couldn't even be tempted. And yet it says he was tempted in every way that we are. Well, yeah, I wasn't, uh, I, mean, I, I don't question that, I mean, I don't question that fact. I pretty well accept what the Bible says about it. But I guess what I was having some trouble with is the fact that we can do it perfectly. No, you don't do it, but I'm saying that it would be that... It's uh, possible, you're saying. It's right. possible, but statistically impossible. You're not going to do it, right? And God knows it's never you're been not. Never done, and never will be done. Right? It is. Uh, it's like a, a baseball pitcher throwing the <coughs> perfect game. That would be uh, the absolute perfect game. Would be that every ball he throws would be a strike for the entire every game. Time he threw it. Right? It's not going to happen. Uh, that uh, we we don't reach it, but but yet the possibility would exist. And I don't even know that that is a decent comparison because that uh, with Jesus, he actually was tempted. He had the choice and he could sin. And, and otherwise, he didn't go, what, go through what I'm going through, you know, if he couldn't sin. On the other hand, to be all honest, uh, in, in all honesty, I, if God has given me a law that I cannot understand and obey if I want to, and then he is going to condemn me, I have a hard time dealing with that. Well, but he's giving us an avenue. To... He's giving that's, us an... how, that's how his love was shown. What, in making me so I couldn't keep the law? 
Why would he do that? No, Why? Why make me so that I couldn't? If he gives the law and he made me, and I can't keep it, then he's made me so I can't keep it. I occasionally yeah, send I don't kids have a up to that because because uh, that's where the love of God. I mean, that's where the love of God comes in is in, in being able to give us grace so that we can. Uh, but all grace, you don't live it perfectly when you under when we become a Christian and we and the grace of God motivates us and we believe all the right things, we still don't do it perfectly because we don't trust perfectly. Uh, what keeps us from perfect obedience is is uh is not having a perfect trust. Well, I don't in think God. I'll live it perfectly any day, probably any hour. But you also have been told that you're not gonna be tempted past what you can. Right. That's a good passage. God will not allow you to be tempted above what you're, but you'll have only those temptations that are common to mankind. That, uh, that the Tim, he makes it clear that God, another passage in James, God doesn't tempt any man, but man is tempted in and of his own, the lust of his own heart. And then sin is conceived in his heart because of his own lust, and then he sins. So there's no part of my sin that I can blame on God. God doesn't tempt me, God made me perfect. He gives me a perfect law. But when lust takes place in my heart and I make the decision to give in to it, then I sin. And I think the very thing that James is hitting there is that don't blame your sin on anybody but yourself. That, uh, that we actually sin. Maybe. Do you think a good example might be that our children, when we bring them up, they indeed... There is, they could trust, they could obey us and do the right thing and all. But in actuality, we all know that they're not going to continually do that. But they could do that. And there's so much more space, so much difference between what we are and our children are and what God is and what we are. So we're certainly not going to be able to perfectly obey Him or live up to His law. Yeah, but I'm saying it's still sin is our choice, is what I'm saying. Right. It's still it's a willful right, like choice. Right, the children, the children don't right. always obey, but the the best of our children right. don't, and we, we we know that right. they don't. But you, would anybody say that they couldn't obey? Right. You know, they, there's the possibility there that they could. Right. In other words, in actuality, they're if, not going to. If I gave my child some rules. And he didn't obey one of them because, in reality, he didn't have the ability to. Then I don't, I don't see how I could hold him accountable there. He has to have the ability and the wherewithal to obey it before I can hold him accountable to it. Otherwise, I, I've asked too much. And to my mind, when I think of the the justice of God, and Paul makes his his need for the sacrifice based on God's perfect justice. God is just and we are unjust, but God didn't make us unjust because that would be unjust on God's part. But I think that we sin because we have an evil nature, and that evil nature was given to us at birth. Who gave you the evil nature? It's the nature of being a human. There's it's nothing like, evil uh, about the flesh. Can you, uh, can you prevent yourself from having evil thoughts? If they're not injected in my mind. Well, to begin with now, the thoughts... To be tempted is not to sin. Uh, when David went up and looked at Bathsheba, 
He understood the situation, and he could have said, this is wrong, and turned around and walked the other way. That's what Joseph would have done. Yeah, but to have the evil fall is to, is, to, uh, is to embody evil and to embrace it. Or to, to, I don't to think so. Your, your mind is just like your stomach. Whatever you put in your stomach, it's got to deal with. And so I can look at something, and that's in my mind. I have no choice on that. But whether I entertain it and give in to it is something else. Uh, I like bacon and eggs and sausage and all that good stuff. That was part of my heritage. It smells good to me. It's tempting. I very seldom eat it because of what I have in my mind. And so I'm tempted by it, but I eat very little of, of that kind of food because of, of what, I, what I actually have in my mind relative to it. But yet it's very appealing. Uh, it's very in, enticing to me. And yet I still have something else in my mind that controls that. So for somebody to inject something into my mind that is enticing or appealing to my fleshly body, I still have to make the decision to give in to it. And, and when I make the decision to give in to it uh, is when I have given in to the temptation and sin occurs. But that is evil, to, to, to have thoughts of uh, resentment or to have thoughts of, uh, of bitterness or, or have thoughts of hate that is evil those thoughts that's sin within no. you that's within but i'm talking about being tempted that you that's can that's what i'm saying that's i mean i don't have a problem with the fact that i that you have I, to have the thought to be tempted well but what i'm saying is, is that the fact that you have the thought is is a part of the evil that was within me if that wasn't within me then I wouldn't have had the thought. I don't think so. Uh, yeah. If you've got evil within you, then the only way it could be there is God put it there. Where else did he come from? I mean, if you're born with this evil nature, uh, in fact, that's exactly what John Calvin it's was a, teaching. It's a, part, it's a part of being a human being. That's what John Calvin taught. And that's where I differ with him. John Calvin says, in fact, the whole Calvinistic theology was based on the fact that man's evil nature was such that the Holy Spirit had to regenerate his mind in a miraculous way and then allow him to believe and repent. And he couldn't believe and repent until that happened. Well, then where does the evil thought come from? The thought itself is not evil. I don't. Uh, you're desiring something that belongs to another person would be wrong. Okay, I mean, if you, if you desire it to the point that you're going to take it, but to have somebody inject something into your mind that entices you, and yet your mind clicks and you say that's wrong, and so you don't do it, you've been tempted, but you haven't sinned. So, but would you think that God would have those kind of thoughts? Jesus was tempted in all ways. Jesus I believe that Jesus was tempted. If, if Jesus had a, it's sort of like a, one preacher, I heard uh, James Watkins uh, one time I uh, still remember the thought because I thought it was good he was dealing with the young people today who believe that they can uh, wear the bikinis and the short shorts and, and the real close dancing and all and, and you know they're just so into it that they're not provoked or they don't sin in their mind or anything and he said if, if they can do all of that and not sin then God has given them a different kind of body than that he gave me, or I mean, he's making little boys different than he used to. But the point is, the sin is not the fact that they're enticed. That that is a natural response of, of the body. The sin comes about when you 
give in to the enticement and you actually began to lust and give and give into it but when you look at that that goes through your mind and you say hey that is wrong and i'm not going to do it then you have overcome that temptation so what you're saying is we are certainly not born with sin we're born pure and innocent but as we come in contact with the world about us we learn to uh, um, to love hate um, desire that, that You're not even accountable to God, right, until you say, look over at Deuteronomy 1. We, even like children, we, for example, teach that children can die and are not lost for their sake, right? That uh, you have to know what you're doing uh, to be guilty before God. Uh, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, I think, is a good passage on this. We've often made the statement that, you know, when the Israelites went into the land after spying it out and ten of the spies had uh, no faith. Uh, we've said that um, only Joshua and Caleb went into the promised land. But that's really not quite accurate. Among the adults that was true. But the young people there that were not accountable did go in before God. They were not accountable because of their understanding. Uh, because, beginning with verse... Uh, Let's see, verse uh, uh, 32. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you in your journey by far at night. Verse 34. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry. Verse 35. Not a man, this is what the God said, not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give to your forefathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land. Because of you, the Lord was angry with me and said, You shall not enter it either. But your assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, will enter into the land. And then look at verse 39. And the little ones, the children, that you said would be taken captive, your children, who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them. They will take possession of it. So the children who did not know good from bad, would not be accountable to God. It's one thing for a child, most children are just simply behavior modified because of punishment we either meet out or don't meet out. And a child thinks of something bad because you say it's bad. It's good because you say it's good. A, a little girl may be involved in an incestuous relationship and think there's nothing wrong because they've never talked better. But when they reach a, a level of maturity and understanding where they say, hey, I know this is wrong. And then when you know that's wrong, therefore you cannot do it and not feel guilty in your own conscience, then at that point it becomes sin. So I'm saying that when, when I think of Jesus and his perfection, not thinking of somebody that grew up and never threw his toy, toy down or anything of that nature, he had to reach a point where he understood right and wrong. And, and, that, and the same with us. So it's, it has nothing to do with our birth or childhood. Whenever we reach a level of understanding where we understand right and wrong, we become accountable before that, uh, with that before God. And then when I know this is wrong and I make the decision to do it, then I sin and I, and I feel guilt in my own heart. But uh, I really believe that Jesus would have done some of the same things that a normal little boy would do coming up. Uh, his brothers weren't overly impressed. 
uh, with him as a, as a child. I mean, they had to see something yet to make a believer out, out of them. But then when he reached the age where he understood right from wrong, and remember at 12 years of age, he was astounding them with his knowledge of the law. And he knew right from wrong, Jesus simply made the decision to do what is right. And I'm not talking about before people become no. and learn about right and wrong. What I'm talking about is as we become adults, even as we become as we become Christians. That's what the apostle you just talked about this morning in Paul discussing the struggle with sin. Right. Uh, we have But it's not God's fault. We have sin. Well, I didn't say it was God's fault. Well, it's God's fault if he gives me an evil nature. If if I've got an evil nature, in other words, I know I don't get it at birth, because he says right there, your little children, uh, they didn't know right from wrong, they're going in. So he tells me right there that evil comes about when I become knowledgeable of right and wrong, and then after I become knowledgeable of it, I make a decision to do wrong. Well, but if God, I but God allows evil. Sure, he does. He, he allows free choice. But he could have he could have stopped it. Not without stopping free choice. But uh, the God God allows free choice. And as a result of free choice, we disobey God. Evil comes about as a result of our disobedience to God. When we call something evil, that's just a word we use to describe an unpleasant thing that's happened. And so what I'm we saying is is that if you if you if you have thoughts of bitterness and evil, I mean if you have thoughts of bitterness and thoughts of resentment and jealousy, that demonstrates that there is an element of evil within you. If there's any, whatever element of evil, what I'm saying, though, is... Isn't that true? Whatever element of evil is in me is because of me, not God. You've learned it. Uh-huh. In other words, uh, like over here again... It's because of the world. There is no way for me to live in this world and not come in contact with evil and not take evil within me. The world can tempt me. But I... Well, but there's... What about uh, we Adam absorb and Eve? It. We absorb it. What about Adam and Eve? What about them? They were tempted, and they gave in to the temptation. They didn't have all these bad things in the world. Satan just tempted them, and, and they made a decision to... They took their trust out of God and made a decision to disobey Him. And death passed unto all men, and all would do the same thing. Um, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of heavenly things, who does not change. He said, only good, perfect things come from God. But I make a decision in my mind, based on my own desires and my, my own lust. And, as, and it was, as a result of that, I sin against God. And when I look back over and I see all the sins in my life, I believe I committed every one of them. And I believe there's, there's not a one of them that I had to. The times that I've lied, I didn't have to lie. Uh, the times that I cheated, I didn't have to cheat. Uh, the times that I did some stupid thing, uh, knowing better, I didn't have to do it. 
I willfully gave in to the desires of my own flesh. And uh, the, I believe Jesus was tempted in every way, just like I am, except he didn't give in to it. And that's why I appreciate him so much. But because he was in the same boat I'm in, the same flesh. He didn't have any more going for him than I did. Uh, he didn't want to go to that cross anymore than I did. I would have probably chickened out and ran uh, that, uh, you know, I may have. But he didn't. And, and he, and the same with all the other things. But I believe the evil desire that's in me is one that I make evil, uh, that I choose to use it in a way that is, you know, different than what, what God is really saying. If you channel this desire in this way, it'll serve you. If you channel this desire in this way, you'll destroy yourself. Well, what we're actually, evil is just a word we use. What we're really describing is a consequence. And, and the consequence comes when we disobey God. Well, many times we think we're going to escape the consequence. And the evil won't happen. We don't intend for evil to happen. We don't intend to get AIDS. We don't intend to get pregnant at the wrong time. Or, or we don't intend to do some of the other things we do. But then when that consequence comes, we call it evil. But it, it comes about as a result that I have made a decision to disobey God. And the result is this consequence. And the consequence is a, we use a word called evil to describe what, it, what, what is involved in that. Paul, I think it would be good if you would make the, the distinction between being tempted and actually sinning. Like when Jesus said, if you commit adultery in your heart, then you're... You, you. Okay. I think the, to show the difference there... Because he says you'd be tempted and not sin, right? Well, the main the main place where we disagree is is that uh, is in the uh, it being humanly possible to live a perfect life, and I mean that's and I don't think that that's taught in the Bible, and I think that that's why grace is there. No, what I'm saying is I mean I don't that uh, you sin. I don't disagree uh, on on the other concepts, but uh, what you said though is that God gives you an, an evil nature at birth. No, what I said was, is that we, what I, well, what I'm, maybe I said that, but I don't remember saying that he gave it to us as, at birth, but what I'm saying is, is that, I thought you said is it, that though. all human beings have, have an evil, evil nature. within them. I see, I disagree with that. Well, I, I believe that, uh, I don't, I believe you don't that. believe it's within the nature of man to sin. I believe that man 